You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is the voice of books for NPR's All Things Considered. His latest book is Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Great pleasure, Rick, as always. Alan, we have uh, three books that are perfectly appropriate for the upcoming holiday. And uh, let's start out with the newest book, a book that I think this writer's readers have been waiting for for many, many years, Stephen King's Doctor Sleep. Mm-hmm. Kept me awake. <laughs> Absolutely. I think... Uh, this is Stephen King at the top of his game in, in every way in terms of extending his Stephen King universe, but introducing a brand new story that is absolutely riveting in every way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's um, it's just like almost like having the good old days back, a dire historic. I mean, I read the book when it first came out. I mean, the Shining, that is, when it first came out. And I, I mean, I, I remember uh, the way I would remember where I was and what I was doing during some dire historical event. I remember I was living in Knoxville, Tennessee. I was stretched out on the sofa in the living room of this house in this subdivision on the outskirts of town. And I was reading along, and I was so terrified, I was afraid to get up and, and, and take a step in the house. And I, I just, I was just li- almost literally riveted to that sofa. Uh, for me, The Shining was the very first time I experienced what I've now come to call the Stephen King flu, which, <laughs> which is the effect of when you start one of his books, no matter what else is going on, you have the flu until you have finished that book and you're stuck on mm-hmm. the couch with the book completely mm-hmm. engrossed. And this is another great example of this. And I think, too, that Stephen King is one of our premier American authors for showing us the way that most of America lives. Maybe we don't all get the uh, of the supernatural that he throws in to make life even more terrifying. But I think his characters have a kind of average feel to them and a very realistic feel that makes them really, I think, it helps sell the supernatural aspect. That's for sure. You know, sure. I think it was... Was it Auden who was doing an essay on thrillers? He was writing about British thrillers, and he said, you know, it's, it's the genre books that give you all the details of a particular time and place that you need to read to be there in that one point in history, whereas, the, you know, the greatest books are timeless and so somehow not uh, absolutely riveted to the time and place, which, which is interesting, right? You can um, piece together... American uh, society by reading Stephen King. That's how the Martians will do it. <laughs> exactly. Well, a- ages and ages hence. <laughs> well, you know, when you talk to people who are writing historical novels, they'll often say, "I read the the fiction of the time, and this would right. be the fiction that." Uh, 200 years hence when somebody wants to write yep. a historical novel set in our time, mm-hmm. they better sit down and read Dr. Sleep, which won't be lucky mm-hmm. them. Yep. <laughs> what we have here is uh, Danny Torrance, the young child from The Shining. He's 
all grown up but not a happy camper. And I think uh, one of the things I think King does very well in this novel is he writes well enough to eradicate the memories of uh, Kubrick's adaptation, which tossed mm-hmm. out much of the best parts of King's original novel. Yeah. And the thing I like about the, the, the depiction of uh, Torrance is that he's an alcoholic, an absolutely convincing alcoholic, but I didn't know that King had been an alcoholic, and, and I don't know, you, you have to be everything you write about, otherwise you'd be in prison or dead, but um, in, in this case, he takes from his own life a lot of the details of that state of perpetual inebriation until Torrance finds uh, a connection to this deeply empowered with the shining adolescent girl in uh, in this New England town where he's working and rises to the occasion and helps her in this battle against this crazed and absolutely terrifying figure uh, with Rose with the hat or Rose in the hat uh, who's head of this tribe of uh, semi-immortal blood, uh, not blood drinkers, but uh, shining drinkers. How do we say that? Psychic vampires. Psychic vampires, yes, that's that's a very good way to say it. Yes, they find these kids who have these various levels of power of the shining and murder them and extract the fumes of this power as they kill the kids. It's really quite... I, I think one of the things that makes a, a this novel like this great is the way that King creates this Rose the Hat figure. You have to have a antagonist who is worthy of the protagonist, and Rose the Hat is certainly worthy of Danny Torrance, and also vice versa. Uh, the only aspect of this novel I think that is going to leave readers a bit wanting is they're going to want to know what happened to Abra down well, the road. Well, that's, you know, I was just about to say that the, the sequel certainly yields enough material for a, a third book, The Life of Abra, and who knows, but King may have that up his sleeve once once he saw he could do the sequel to The Shining. And, and two, one of the things that's really been a pleasure about Stephen King's novels is the way they interlock with one another. So there's lots of stuff in this book for people who have read his other stuff mm-hmm. to connect with his other works. And interestingly enough, it also connects very well with uh, his son's new book, uh, Nosferatu by Joe Hill, uh, because Charlie Manx, they knew the main bad guy in, in uh, Nosferatu. And um, let me say that Nosferatu lives up to the heritage of Stephen King in every way. Well, you know, I haven't read any of the other family members. I, I You know, one King family member in a lifetime is enough for me. <laughs> I've, you know, there are a few other people I want to read. But, I mean, this, this notion of interlocking figures, you know, it comes right out of the great mainstream of American fiction from... Uh, you know, Winesburg, Ohio, to Faulkner's New York and Matalfa County, and the John Edgar Wideman's Pittsburgh. Uh, I mean, there are all these uh, places and people who appear in various novels and, and stories that make up a, a county or a town or, or a universe. And, and I guess it all goes, it goes back to uh, Balzac and the human comedy, where he works with hundreds of char- Parisian characters, some who know each other, some who observe each other at a distance. But so it's it's a great tradition in modern fiction the way he segues from uh, from
from The Shining into this new uh, Dr. Sleep is, uh, you know, it's very deft. And maybe there will be a book about young Abra, who is an absolute darling. What a sweetheart she is. And she's got this extraordinary psychic power that she can connect with Rose across, you know, almost 2,000 miles of American highway, much to her uh, distress. And it's nice to see a, a, such a well-crafted child character in a mm-hmm. novel, which is not—that's a tough— that's a lot tougher to do than than King makes it seem. Mm-hmm. And that's always a hallmark of a great author, somebody who makes it all seem so easy and seamless. Mm-hmm. Well, we I mean, we don't want to... Do we want to say anything more about this? We don't no, I think, we, the I think we've, we've got, the, got it covered. Uh, and, and we can go to, yet to, a, to another second book in a series. Right. Anne Rice's The Wolves of Midwinter. Yes, and Anne Rice. I think this is Anne Rice in 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 fine form as well. She's taken. I, there's a, less action, I think, than in the Wolf Gift, but she's in her definitely in her element of world building and myth building, and she seems to be having just a lot of fun in this book. Yeah, well, it it does. I mean, first of all, we we have to say you need to read the first one in the series, The Wolf Gift. I absolutely really get this. Because, you know, the, the, the publisher has added this recap page before the, the, the book itself begins. And it, it, it's kind of like those uh, recaps you get on all the uh, cable series, you know, previously on 24, previously <laughs> on Game of Thrones. So you get in print, it's in front of you, previously in... Uh, the Wolf series, and so you learn that Golding, the reporter from uh, San Francisco, has been bitten by a strange wild animal when he's visiting this woman up in the country in, in Mendocino County, and and he undergoes the chrism, this sea change that turns him into a werewolf, which also makes him a member of this <laughs> near-eternal clan of similar folks known as the Morphin Kinder. Um, and so it takes a lot of segueing in this, maybe the what you'd say the first half of this, this uh, second in the series, The Wolves of Midwinter, to accustom uh, us to the Morphin Kinder, to accustom uh, Golding to uh, his new state. You know, he has to learn how to handle what happens when you start growing long hair and fangs and claws, and you suddenly have a great big hankering for human flesh. <laughs> Uh, but so it's it's about midway through the book when this midwinter festival that they've been preparing comes to a head, and, and frankly, I found that kind of slow, although I stuck with it, and it's certainly well worth sticking through because uh, you know you get nasty situations arise in the second half of the book, kidnappings and more changes into wolf and wolf and sex and. And this uh, raid, when all the morphin kinder in, in the house change into wolves and go after this drug gang in San Francisco, I mean, it, it, it has a comic book outline to it, but it doesn't seem that way as you read it. I think she she does that, handles that really well. I like this kind of uh, the superhero aspect of this, yeah, yeah. And, and I think she she gives that 
uh, one of the reasons I think that works so well is the the kind of the slower parts give that build up the atmosphere, they build up the character, they give it this kind of richness, I think. This is like a, a dinner where you have a rich, rich soup, a, a really complicated salad, then you get a big honking steak. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a lot of fun when, when you finally get to the big honking steak, but I think it wouldn't quite seem so uh well-rounded unless you had some of that buildup and i really like the world building she's doing here mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. the the way that with the ghosts and the way that that is there's some suggestions that there's a lot more to come i i think that uh she's building up plot in two ways there's the plot of what happens in the book with you know the action-packed stuff but there's also the mm -hmm. plot of what exactly is going on what are these mm -hmm. critters mm -hmm. how how is she going to develop that? And that, um, which we see is going to go for at least another book and probably more, I would be my guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's also a very interesting plot, and she's good at that. Oh, I'm, think, I'm, I'm thinking this is a series uh, rather than a, just a trilogy. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, we talked about King developing the character of Abra. I mean, she's got Golding, who's still quite a young guy, who has, you know, immortal possibilities. His girlfriend, you know, over the course of these two books, he's dumped his fiancée, mean, nasty woman, I have to say, for this uh, lovely woman, Laura, who wants to become, you know, wants to undergo the chrism or the wolf change. And they, they are something else together by the end of the book. And I'm sure their life together is going to take up a volume or two at least uh, beyond this and then there's the i mean there's uh you know a war within the morphin kinder clan themselves and i mean there's a lot of stuff that she's got to work with and uh, talking about a lot of stuff i mean what a what a wonderfully rich period of uh genre fiction we're in with all of this going on i mean it's 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 sort of like the great high days of uh, American science fiction, mm -hmm. uh, don't you think? I, I, mean, I just I would say so. Yeah, we have people. There's a understanding and acceptance that uh, genre fiction is not just for kids, and that it can be developed and as rich and exciting and as immersive and embracing as any piece of literary fiction uh, without the genre elements. And I think a lot of writers have really twigged how to use these genre tropes mm -hmm. to externalize stuff that is much more difficult to talk about. We live yeah. in a much really complicated time, and there are so many things that are so hard to say or seem kind of trite when you plot them out just in as realistic stories, but when you can add that sukona, the supernatural, it makes it exciting and rich and fun, and you still get the point. Well, I, what I think, it's really a plot that intrigues me about, I mean, to watch them make, invent these plots as, as we go along. I mean, the plot of this second volume of The Rise seems to be almost dormant until the second half when it just, you know, breaks open. Under in a, in a way, the book has a kind of chrism of its own. <laughs> um, I mean, before the book is over, uh, Golding has extended his family in a very surprising way, and and uh, and he and uh, his girlfriend are 
you know, starting to live as Wolfen together. I mean, it's just great stuff. And it, it's what's even better is, uh, you know, with any apologies to uh, devout Christians among us, uh, I mean, to see her put those awful, awful Jesus novels behind her and undergo a kind of you know, change herself from, you know, into a, a, a new version of the wonderful old rice of the Vampire Chronicles. Now, one of the things uh, that's interesting about genre fiction is how many writers we don't know about. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us a little bit about Michael Gruber. You know, I, I had seen a couple of Gruber books. The titles seemed interesting, but it, it's only the last two that I, I actually read. And I mean, here's this guy. He's, he's been all over the place. He's been a, a civil servant. So I guess he worked here in, in where I live in Washington. He's worked as a ghostwriter for an American judge. He's a, worked as an environmentalist and speechwriter for for you know a speechwriter for other people. And here he started publishing these really technically fabulous genre novels with really interesting characters. And um, I mean, it just reminds me of uh, the old Richard Condon novels in a way. It's they're so quirky and idiosyncratic, and yet he writes a sentence and he makes a scene that's. that's fluid and easy to to read and just you know you can just throw yourself into the drama he's not he's not entirely hard boiled you know he's got this historical and philosophical bent but you know he ain't southern fried either so uh, he he's just his own person within within a genre that makes demands on a writer you know you have to do this you have to do that but he manages to bend the material in such a way as to really put his Mark on the uh, on these books in, in, in a really special way, and in this one he uh, the title is the return. Mm-hmm. Uh, it opens with a uh, doctor giving the main character uh, Rick Martyr a death sentence, and Martyr decides uh, he's going to uh, take up a great project and return to the Mexico of his late wife's heritage, both of her parents. His late in-laws were murdered by a, a drug gang in, in the deep part of Mexico. He goes back to the Mexico of his late wife's family uh, with plenty of money, and as it happens with uh, a Vietnam buddy of his, so there's a lot of war history in his background, and takes on two entire uh, Mexican drug cartels. Uh, with a little help from the army, but mainly of uh, by tactics and weaponry of his own devising, and it's uh, well, let's just say literally, it's explosive. So, so it's really a kind of old-fashioned heroic quest plot that's completely steeped, absolutely immersed in you know the culture of contemporary Mexico, with this very savvy and particularly odd in many ways, but ultimately quite heroic main character in charge. One of the things uh, I like about uh, Gruber's stuff is I think he really does have uh, a great way of combining thriller elements with a little bit of uh, supernatural here and there. And he, as you say, I think he's very much his own man. It's You cannot pigeonhole him, and his work is a bit difficult to describe other than 
pick it up at your own peril because you won't be putting it down anytime soon. Yeah, but I would say, I mean, I mentioned those other guys. You know, if you're a fan of Richard Condon, if you're a fan of Don Winslow, I mean, uh, you should definitely read uh, read work by Michael Gruber. I would totally agree. I've been speaking with Alan Chews. His latest novel is Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Pleasure, Greg. I enjoyed it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.